The Ringers Nora Princiati and Nathan Hubbard are on a journey breaking down every single Taylor Swift album. For all you Swifties out there, this is the podcast for you. From her most famous moments to her most obscure references, every single album, Taylor Swift has it all. Check it out on the Ringer Dish feed, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore, and you are listening to Black on the Air. Thanks for choosing me, choosing this program to listen in. Really appreciate it. Nice to have you guys here. Um, Really interesting show today. I'm talking to Walter Isaacson, the author of books such as uh, the biographies of Einstein, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, all of those excellent books. He has a new book out called uh, The Code Breaker. And it's about the scientist Jennifer Doubtna and her work with CRISPR and the vaccine. Uh, Jennifer Doubtna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race is the title of the book. But it's fascinating. I love this kind of stuff, guys. I was a huge science nerd growing up, by the way. <laughs> you know, just so you know, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a scientist. That was the first thing ever in my life that I wanted to be. Still in love with science. Love this stuff. So I had to talk with Walter about this. Really fascinating. And Jennifer Doubtna, her life is uh, very interesting, too, uh, her journey and all that stuff. But it's a great book, guys. Um, it's a really, really good book. Get it if you can. Uh, Walter Isaacson, The Code Breaker. And I talked to him a couple of days ago, and I hope you enjoy that conversation. So, oh, also I was on uh, Bill Marshall last night. Thanks to Bill for having me on. Very nice of him. And so tune that in if you can. And it's on HBO. It was a fun show. <laughs> Professor Galloway, man, he was on fire. He was great. Such a great guy. It was a fun, uh, it was a fun panel. I found myself just watching a lot of it myself. So tune it in. You'll see what I'm saying. He was on fire. He was great. It was a great, uh, it was a fun show. Bill has always been uh, cool and reaching out to me and that kind of stuff. When I, when my show went down on Comedy Central, Bill Maher was one of the first people to reach out to me directly, you know, just express his, uh, thoughts about it and invited me in a show, you know, all kinds of stuff. So he was always very kind, I'll say. But um, it was interesting doing the show, you know, in COVID and everything with, they had an audience of people who were tested, you know, being on the show, you had to get tested and all that. And uh, dealing with the, with the situation that we're in, I thought was, uh, was very good. They really did a good job. And I've always felt from the beginning of this whole uh, ridiculous thing, this pandemic, that uh, we, you know, once we knew we were in this for the long haul, especially, I felt there were two things that we needed to do at the same time. Number one, we had to mitigate 
you know, as best as we could by wearing masks, by isolating, that kind of stuff. Do all the things that they tell us to do to the best that we can. But at the same time, number two, we had to learn how to live with this. We can't just completely shut down society. How are we going to live with this going forward? Because, you know, we knew this was going to be around for a while. And the way that they're doing real time, I think, is a good example of, of doing that right now. You know, there's a lot of examples out there. I never understood the people who are just these anti-maskers that don't want to take any precautions. It, being an anti-masker, that's the hill you literally want to die on. Makes no sense at all to me. It really doesn't at all. You know, that that's the, the liberty thing that you want to die on. You know, uh, you know, and the ridiculousness of the people. It seems to be all on the right, you know, that if you're you have to wear a mask somehow that's taking away your liberties. But the same people think if you don't wear a flag pin, you're not a patriot. You know, it's so ridiculous. Some of the ironies, but whatever, uh, as they pointed out on the show last night, this is what they're calling the coronaversary. It's been a year since the shutdown started and it has been a very surreal year. As I've said in the last few weeks, my heart goes out to everybody that have lost people you know, including myself, you know, the story of me <clears throat> losing my brother, but so many people have lost loved ones. Uh, some of the worst stories are not being able to see the person once they've been in the hospital, that sort of thing, you know, not being able to bury them properly. I'm going through some of that. And some of that stuff has been, wow, man, it's just been, I've never seen anything like that. And And I do think about how we're going to come out of this in terms of our psyche, in terms of our collective, like, I don't know, American will, if you will, you know, will there be a collective kind of PTSD or something? You know, I I, I think there's going to be something like that. I don't know how it's going to manifest itself, but I hope we can get through that. The Like, guys, it is, I don't want to bring you guys down right now, but it just, my heart goes out to like all the like the kids that have committed suicide and that type of thing. We, we got to keep our eyes on our young ones right now too, you know, you know, being out of school for so long too has for some kids have left them unmoored in ways that can be very dangerous at certain parts of their lives. So let's do all we can to look after not just our own kids, but you know, just <laughs> children in general, <laughs> you know, that whole vulnerable ages, let's say between five and 21 or whatever it is, you know, uh, where anything can happen. So just uh, keeping my eye on that. And the other thing this year is the eruption of uh, the whole civil rights thing with the George Floyd and the Breonna Taylor. I think it was a year ago that the Breonna Taylor incident happened. Audrey Aubrey, the guy who was kind of hunted down in the streets. I think that was his name. I hope I got it right. No, I, I know I just said that wrong. Ahmed Aubrey. Is that his name? I think so. Did I say Audrey? Don't listen to me, you guys. I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to names. It's so horrible. But uh, you know the story that I'm talking about. So you'll you'll get the name right and you'll correct me on Twitter, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, but you know what I'm talking about. That was horrible. That was one of the worst things I've seen. And then that happened right before the George Floyd thing. And because we were isolated, because it was the pandemic, people really got to experience the, that George Floyd moment you know, of uh, just the horror of it. And kind of felt, I think a lot of white people felt like the emotions of what we as a group, black people, I'm saying, 
have felt for a long time, just the emotions, the raw emotions of, of that type of incident, you know, and it's, I've never seen anything like that. The, the outpouring of emotions in the streets all over the world based on that incident. And we'll see how that's going to play out too. I'm interested to see what are the ramifications of that type of global eruption? Will they be long lasting in terms of policy, how people feel about it? Has it really opened people's eyes and changed people's minds? Or was it just preaching to the choir, that type of thing? I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, there was this incident uh, that just happened last night. I think I just saw on the news. This is crazy, guys. This this makes me a little skeptical about <laughs> if you know people understood that racism is indeed still alive. There was this basketball game in Oklahoma. Norman, Oklahoma. I actually did stand up there, I think, years ago, like at a racetrack or something. They used to have a comedy club thing. It was so bizarre. There you comics out there that did it, you know what I'm talking about. But I believe it was in Norman, Oklahoma. But there was a girls bas- high school, by the way, high school girls basketball game between, I believe, Norman High School and another team. And they played the national anthem. And these guys, I assume white guys on the radio, were calling it. And during the national anthem, the Norman High School girls knelt down during it and the mic was still on for these announcers and the shit they said, man, was so horrible. First, they're just trashing. They go, Oh, can you believe this? Look at this shit. These fucking girls, you know, I hope Norman fucking loses. Like they were saying that, which was terrible. But then they actually said on the mic, one of them said those fucking niggers, fucking niggers. This is what he said about high school girls. All they're doing is kneeling. All they're doing is kneeling during the national anthem. And he's, he, this triggers him so much that he's got to say fucking niggers. And by the way, it was black girls and white girls who were kneeling. You know, it's not just black girls, but they're all fucking niggers, according to him, right? Just for kneeling, guys. They're not burning a flag, you know. They're not saying anything. They're kneeling. And as you know, I'm Catholic, and kneeling is a sign of respect in the Catholic faith. Amazing. After all we've been through this year and that, and this is what's still out there, okay? And this is the response that this person had. I think his name is Matt Rowan. I'm going to read it to you because it's so ridiculous. This is the press release. He says, I, Matt Rowan, On Thursday, March 11th, 2021, most regrettably made some statements that cannot be taken back. During the Norman High School girls basketball game against Midwest City, I made inappropriate and racist comments, believing that the microphone was off. However, let me state immediately, that is no excuse. Such comments should never have been uttered. I am a family man. I am married, have two children, and at one time was a youth pastor. I continue to be a member of a Baptist church. I have not only embarrassed and disappointed myself, I have embarrassed and disappointed my family and my friends. I will state that I suffered type 1 diabetes, and during the game, my sugar was spiking. While not excusing my remarks, it is not unusual when my sugar spikes that I become disoriented and often say things that are not appropriate as well as hurtful. I do not believe that I would have made such horrible statements absent my sugar spiking. No, 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 no. There is nowhere in the medical journals that I have ever seen that say one of the results of diabetes, one of the side effects is to use the phrase fucking niggers, that that will come out of your mouth. Be careful. 
Oh, you have diabetes? Ooh, well, stay away from sugar. Here, I'm going to give you some insulin. Fucking niggers might come out of your mouth. Uh, I just want you to know that. So be careful what goes in your mouth and be careful what comes out of your mouth. Just want you to know that as your doctor and your friend. Guys, what the fuck? He's a youth pastor. This is a, a pastor. This is where his, this is what he really believes, you know. He regrets that the microphone wasn't off. This is crazy. This is an example of racism, by the way. You know me when I, I always say, guys, let me tell you, let me, let me guide you of what is actually racist and what is not. Like the whole Bachelor thing with Chris Harrison, you know, where he was, you know, just fumbling, uh, trying to defend the woman who was on the show because she went to something and he just had a bad moment, I think, of of trying to explain that. That was not racism. They're treating Chris Harrison like like he was racist or whatever. He is not. You know, that is not an example. That is an example of somebody who doesn't know how to express themselves properly in this moment. You know, he was inartful in what he was saying. I believe if we're being honest about it, if we're keeping 100 percent real, this is racism. You guys, this guy is a youth pastor, by the way, and he's calling this game. And this is how he really feels about it. Thank you, Sugar Spike, for for letting us for allowing us to hear this. We should be thanking the sugar spike, by the way. You gotta be fucking kidding me. God, I can't believe somebody would say some shit like that. So anyhow, this is why I don't know. I don't I don't know where we're gonna be. I have no idea, you know. Like the whole thing with Harry and Meghan this past week, you know, people trying to determine whether the royal family is racist or not. You know, guys, come on. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about people who believe they are superior by their blood. So right there, that's a problem. But that's not an issue whether the royal family is racist. No, it's the tabloid press. The tabloid press, they're the racist motherfuckers in the way that they treated Meghan Markle, man. I mean, that family, of course, is going to have their own issues. But to me, that's not the story. I, I wish the that Oprah would have focused more on the way that that tablet press really handled, you know, their relationship and everything. They touched it in a little bit, but that's where that racism really showed its true colors, you know, of how you're covering something. Cause of course the Royals, I said this last night in Bilmar, of course they're going to wonder how dark the baby's going to be. They're the British Royal family. It's not Bridgerton, you know, where they're used to, you know, the mixed couple, you know, it's that, racist tabloid press that's going to be covering them, not Lady Whistledown, you know. Oh, and it appears that the the beige mixed race duchess has given birth, surprisingly, to a dark chocolate little Hershey's kiss of Prince, Prince Archie. How delightful. That is not the way that would be covered. Thank you very much for that impression. Anyhow, so I don't know. I don't know where we're going to be. Racially, I have no idea what the fallout is going to be, but just know that this shit is going on at a high school girls football game. Just so you know, just putting it out there. So anyhow, that's all I got for today. And I will be, I had mentioned, I'm going to be talking more about, you know, the distinctions between what I feel are racial justice and uh, racial grievance 
And I think I'll talk about that on the next show. And, you know, I think there are two important distinctions that we need to talk about right now, as well as some other things in this area to see where we're going. Get your vaccines if you have the chance, everybody. Get vaccinated. Don't be afraid of it. And they say if you have a chance to get it, like if you're taking someone who's getting a vaccine, if they have extra ones, you get it, try to get it. Um, I haven't gotten mine yet. I've been looking out for, you know, those extra ones and that kind of stuff, especially, you know, with my brother, what happened to him trying to get vaccinated and all that stuff. Get it, get it, get it. That's what they recommend. Don't feel bad about that. And I have not convinced my parents to get it yet. I don't know what's going on with that. I know I'm spilling a little tea right now, but if you have parents who don't want to do it, try to convince them to, I'm still working on them. Uh, maybe I'll talk about that next time too. It's just crazy town, but I'm working on it. Anyhow, that's it. Walt Risenstein's coming up next. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's Wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Um, I told you this year I'm going to do stuff that I love, you know. And this is in one of those areas. I'm so honored to have this、uh, person on. The book is Codebreaker: The Story of Jennifer. Doutna and gene editing and the future of the human race, and he's the author of、uh, Einstein, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci. It's the one and only Walter Isaacson. Welcome to Black on the Air, Walter. Oh man, wow! It is so cool to be with you. It is so nice to have you. I, I was telling you, I'm a huge fan. I love, love, love the Einstein book. You know, he's such a fascinating character. I mean, da Vinci, of course, too, is amazing. There's so much like I feel we didn't know about da Vinci, and.、Uh, And I love the way that you write, and you bring us these stories. And this is an area that I love. I saw a special about Jennifer and CRISPR and all this.、Uh, I think it was last year, the year before, and it's just fascinating. This whole work. I love how these discoveries kind of bring us to a new kind of place, almost in history. We're kind of living in it, which is kind of interesting, you know, as we're going through a tough time. Of course, what what kind of drew you to this subject personally? Well, first of all. I knew entering an age of life sciences. You know,、yeah. I grew up. You grew up、uh, thinking we had to understand the digital revolution, and we do.、Yeah. But now, you know, our kids are going to grow up having to understand the genetic revolution, and this coronavirus pandemic sure drove that home. Yeah, you know, I got the Pfizer vaccine, which is this new type of vaccine that just uses RNA as a messenger to tell、yeah. cells what to build. Well, that's what Jennifer Doudna helped create. Yeah. She became an expert in RNA, which is sort of the neglected stepchild of、uh, yes. DNA,、yeah. but it does the real work in our bodies.、Yeah. And I've always found that there's a real joy that comes from understanding how something works, and especially when that something is ourselves. So I wanted to follow this remarkable、mm-hmm. woman who, as a young girl, was told girls don't do science. Yes. Okay, I'm going to persist, and she's. You know, created this tool where we can edit our genes. She's helped do the science that'll help us fight coronavirus,、yeah. and、um, I just found it inspiring. 
Yeah. And I, I appreciate the fact that you uh, give us her personal story. You know, it's so important. I feel it is important to understand the person and not just the science, don't you? Well, that's why I'm a biographer. You know? Yes, <laughs> yes, sort of. exactly. And by the way, we didn't invent that concept. You know, the good yeah. Lord did. That's how the Bible does it. You know, you start right. with Adam and Eve, and you get through Moses and Jesus, and yeah. you learn by understanding the lives of people. And so I've always done that my whole life. Even when I was at yeah. Time Magazine, we used to always put a person on the cover. It's sure. the best way you can relate to something and yeah. hear the narrative tale. Yeah, I love it. I'm very interested in like contemporary accounts of things. I love time capsules. I love finding out little bits and pieces of what's happening in the culture during certain times, because there's so many things that can inspire people and inspire human beings. And you never know what that's going to be. It's not just the linear line of there's a problem and a problem gets solved. Right. Yeah. You know, what inspired Jennifer Dowden, my hero is that she was in sixth grade and she came home one day mm-hmm. and she found that her dad had left a paperback on yeah. her back. I love that and story. It was, yeah, and it was the double mm-hmm. helix by Jim yeah. Watson about the discovery of the structure of DNA. And Jennifer thought it was a mystery story, a yes. story. <laughs> right. She like puts it aside for a little while and reads it on a rainy Saturday. And then she realizes what well, really is a detective story. It's about yeah. uh, figuring out the secrets of life. And in the book, there's a character, an important scientist named Rosalind Franklin, who Jim Watson kind of treats condescendingly. Right. Jennifer said, I I didn't notice how condescending he was being because I was so amazed a woman could be a scientist. And so it's important to have role models. And that's, you know, how she got into it. Yeah. And uh, I think they've even been accused of stealing uh, Franklin's work in some cases, too, or at least not giving her credit. Yeah. yeah, they use the images that she did of DNA uh, without her permission. Right. And yes, I mean, women and others have been written out of the history of science and technology yeah. ever since Ada Lovelace helped invent the computer. And that's another reason I wanted to write this book was I wanted to show, you know, the role a persistent woman could play. Of course, yeah. I didn't pick her because she, she was a woman and, you know, she and another woman, Emmanuel Charpentier, her research partner, won the Nobel Prize this past October. So it's, you know, it was not simply that she was a woman. She's the one who made the discoveries. And yet it is significant in some ways, too. You know, I love that it traces, you can trace it back to Madame Curie, which is another story that should be always retold, I believe, in her contributions to science and how just think of how difficult it probably was back then for for Curie to even be respected. And yet she still yeah. is a giant, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. She had a wild story. Uh, Marie Curie, she had an interesting personal life and lots yeah. of friends with Einstein, but yeah, people need role models. I think so too. And, you know, especially in science and technology. Also, I think, as you say, you like biographies. When you go hand in hand on a journey of discovery, like I try to do with Jennifer Doudna and her colleagues and her competitors, sure. her rivals, and we march through hand in hand how each discovery was made, that kind of demystifies science. It makes it a little bit less intimidating. A little more accessible in some ways, too. Um, I was struck by uh, her feelings of feeling like an outsider, 
Uh, she grew up in in Hawaii. My ex is from Hawaii, so I know you know when you're called a howley, <laughs> what that means being a white person. In fact, if you're a mix, you're called a hapa howley, and I think that's a step up from being a howley, actually. But, uh, <laughs> Boy, we live in an interesting society. I know, I know. But it's funny how that feeling of outsider, how that can be common with people we associate as geniuses or or people who make breakthroughs. Do you think that's a common thread with feeling that you're, you don't quite belong and maybe there's this other thing that you belong to? Yeah, I mean, Steve Jobs was adopted. In fact, yeah. his adoptive family, they end up not taking him. So he always felt like a, a sort of a bit of an outsider where he gets plopped in the home of an auto mechanic, you know, in California. And he always was asking, how do I fit in? And he told me, that was the key to Leonardo da Vinci. So when mm-hmm. Steve uh, convinced me I should write a biography of Leonardo da Vinci, you got this guy, you know, he's like 14 years old, and he leaves his village, uh, you know, Vinci, Italy, to go to the big town of Florence, mm-hmm. and he's an outsider. He's yeah. born out of wedlock. He's gay. He's distracted. He has, you know, these sort of very uh, quirky tendencies mm-hmm. and yet he figures out how do I fit into the renaissance that's happening in Florence and even if you look at Vitruvian Man you know that naked yeah, guy absolutely. Jumping jacks yes, yes 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 <laughs> that's Leonardo saying how do we fit into the cosmos wow. so I think Jennifer had that curiosity as well which is I feel like a bit of an outsider let me try to figure out not only the world, but how do we humans fit into it? We all have that at times. Like, how do we, why are we here? How do we fit in? Yeah. Even Leonardo's backwards writing, which was very interesting. He was left-handed. That was another thing that was, back then, made him a particular outsider. They call, you know. I know. It's funny. (laughs) Being a left-hand person. The Mm -hmm. devil, the devil took over your hands is what happened in that case. Yeah. Uh, I love, uh, so you kind of break down, uh, I love doing this type of thing. I do it as an exercise, actually. That's how geeky I am with uh, this type of stuff. But uh, how the 20th century kind of started with the atom, you know, when you yeah. think of uh, uh, Einstein and some of his work and some of the scientists around then. And then it, you know, trans uh, kind of evolved into the bit, you know, how information age uh, kind of took over and, and it was a huge revolution that we're living in now. And now you feel like, the, the gene is having its day, and and uh, we're in the age of the gene. Is that uh, does that seem fair? Is that right? Yeah, the the three fundamental kernels of our existence. You know, the atom, the bit, which is a binary digit that codes information, mm-hmm. and the gene. And I think we're entering a twenty first century in which the gene is going to be the type of coding we have to figure out. Right. And, uh, you know, we lived through the physics revolution of the 20th century with atom bombs and things like and space mm-hmm. travel. Then the information technology revolution with the Internet microchip and uh, computer. Uh, now that's all getting connected to this new revolution that's mm-hmm. based on the four letters of the genetic code, not the zeros and ones of the digital code. Yeah, uh, the uh, Gattaca code, right? (laughs) You got it. Yeah, those are the four letters. Yeah, when did the gene first get its starring role? What was the first kind of uh, gene breakthrough that kind of bounced us into this age, would you say? Well, I go back to the 1850s where Mm -hmm. 
Charles Darwin is looking at the beaks of finches in the Galapagos Island, mm-hmm. and this weird sort of uh, monk named Gregor Mendel, who's not very good at being a, a minister, uh, is breeding peas in uh, Central Europe in his monastery. Mm-hmm. And so from the properties of Mendel's peas to the beaks of uh, Darwin's finches, it becomes apparent that there's something that hands down genetic information mm-hmm. from generation to generation. And eventually, in the early to, um 20th century gets called the gene and it's around the 1950s in which it's clear that this uh, substance called DNA in our cells that it carries the genetic code then Watson and Crick using that photograph from Rosalind Franklin win the race to discover how DNA does it and then around the year 2000, we have the Human Genome Project in which we sequence all three billion right. letter pairs uh, in our DNA. But you know what? Being able to read our DNA was cool, but it didn't really do much for us. Right. That's where Jennifer Davenant comes into the tale because she invents a way to rewrite that code as opposed to just read it. Right. And that's where uh, how CRISPR evolves. Is that right? Yeah. CRISPR was a system that bacteria have been using for 3 billion years yeah. in order to fight off viruses because their fight against viruses is even worse than ours. And what they do is if, if a virus attacks them, they take a mugshot, a little snippet uh, of the appearance of that um, virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they take those letters and put it in the bacteria's own uh, clustered repeated sequences of DNA. And that's why they're called CRISPR. And so if the virus attacks again, they say, oh, I recognize that virus. And it has a scissors, an enzyme that cuts it up. Well, that's pretty useful for us to understand and now that we're being attacked by viruses so often. But what Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Sharpenjang and Fong Zhang and many others figured out was we could repurpose this system bacteria use mm-hmm. and say, oh, if it can guide a scissors to cut a piece of DNA where it gets targeted, why don't we make it into a tool to um, cut and change and paste our own genes and our own right. human bodies? And that's what this CRISPR system is. Right. So let's take a couple of steps back because I want to see, and I understand you're a journalist, not a scientist, but you know, you know, all these sounds like you have a really good uh, handle on all these terms, but let's go through DNA, RNA, and you explained CRISPR pretty good, but we'll go back to that. Let's make a distinction between DNA and RNA. DNA, uh, can you uh, give us a brief definition of what DNA actually is? And does and if I'm, let me see if my memory is correct. Is that deoxyribonucleic acid? I'm glad you, yeah, yeah, you got it right. Yeah. That's, I yes, actually yeah. remember that from high school, believe it or not. Right. All you need mm-hmm. is a little high school uh, <laughs> yeah. science. Uh, this is not that hard scientifically, but yeah, that's what right. it stands for. And these nucleic acids are just what they sound like. They're acids sure. that are in the you know nucleus of our cells. And, um, you know, they're like proteins. And uh-huh. I mean, our body has different substances. Among them are these nucleic acids. The uh-huh. famous one is DNA. You know, it gets it smug on the cover of magazines. <laughs> we talk about the DNA of, a, of an organization or of a country or you know, society, Mm -hmm. but like a lot of famous, uh, siblings, 
uh, it doesn't do much work. It just sits in the middle of our cells and curates information. And so, so DNA basically is the archive, right? right? DNA holds all the information that whatever is going on in the body, it's encoded there in the DNA, right? Right. It's yeah. encoded in the DNA. It's an archive. That's a really good way to put it mm-hmm. because it's not, it uh, doesn't do much. It just, it's not active. The nucleus of the cell. Right. And the purpose of DNA is to guard that information, to curate mm-hmm. it and to replicate it when necessary. And yes, what it does is 3 billion pairs of letters, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it says, all right, you got to build these proteins. It, it's mm-hmm. a, the instruction set for building proteins. Mm-hmm. Those proteins can be, you know, our fingernails or our hair or the neurons in our brain or the hormones in our system. They're all proteins. Right. And every cell of the human body uh, has an instruction set in our DNA saying, how do you build that cell? So the DNA is like the kernel's secret recipe. Exactly. <laughs> it's just hiding like out. <laughs> yes. It's the, the original code. The vault is the nucleus of our cells. Got it. And, and then RNA is sort of like the hardworking, you know, younger sibling that doesn't okay. get as famous. But what RNA does is it goes into that vault and takes a snippet of genetic information uh, and, build, and goes out to the region of the cell where we build protein. And so, says, R- okay, uh-huh. I want you to build a protein. Okay, so RNA is the actual messenger. It's That's what we use it for, and like in that Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, they're called mRNA, and that just means right. it's the messenger. Okay, so it has the actual job of going to the library, getting the library books, and taking it to the person and whatever the information is. It, the RNA it, is it doesn't even take the whole book. It just takes a sentence. Says, <laughs> it just takes a, all right, a you need portion to of build it. the spike protein of the coronavirus right now, or you need to build a protein that will be a hair follicle or something. And so there's a region, the outer region of our cell, that's where we make proteins, but we right. do it. Because the messenger RNA says, now let's build this protein. And that's how we make our vaccines uh, for the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And that's why RNA is this miracle molecule. And Jennifer Doudna did for RNA what Rosalind Franklin and others had done for DNA, mm-hmm. which is, let me figure out the structure. Let me figure out how it twists and it folds. We already mm-hmm. know the chemicals in it. But if you're a detective trying to figure out a secret of life, the biggest clue is what's the shape of the key. Right. And right. that's what Jennifer does with RNA, which leads her to figure out how to use it to edit our genes. And of course, now in the past year, we've used it to make vaccines. Okay. So before we jump to that, let's talk about vaccines. So, because now we're at a moment where we're in a crisis. And vaccines usually take a long time to develop because they're developed a certain way. In fact, you, you talk about the history of vaccines. It started with the was a smallpox, I think, right? Was the first one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, from, from Africa, uh, the colonists in America and then people in England learned how to inoculate against mm-hmm. smallpox by taking a weakened version of the virus and uh, putting it in, uh, into our, a little cut in our arm. Yeah, they realized that uh, 
the disease that a cow had, a form of pox, didn't make someone sick, but also protected them from smallpox, which... Uh, yeah, that was Fleming, uh, uh, that was uh, Alexander Fleming's great uh, leap, which is, hey, we don't have to use the real smallpox vaccine. Yeah. We can use the one that cows have, because that's safer. And what a, what a revolution at that time, because smallpox was such a killer, right? Oh, yeah, Benjamin Franklin, who I wrote about, um, his son is uh, uh, Frank Frankie he was called died of smallpox mm-hmm. because Franklin was waiting to inoculate him hadn't done so and there was a smallpox epidemic so it wow. was huge it was worse than coronavirus and did people how how long did it take the world I feel like that was developed before people really understood what was happening is that true like did yeah. do, did they understand later why it actually worked but they just knew that it worked in the beginning? Yeah, we did not know what viruses were at right. that point. And this is like in the early 1800s and then yeah. later 1800s when Fleming does it with cowpox. You know, Louis Pasteur and a lot of people were figuring out how microbes, you know, things like mm-hmm. viruses and bacteria work. But no, they figured it out before they understood the basic science. Yeah, because viruses weren't even known until after the Spanish flu, right? Right. If you say yeah. so, I'm now getting a I think so, yeah. from Larry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> this I is what I say. My nerdy brain collects these things. Well, yeah. I, I, they, they attacked the Spanish flu without knowing that how viruses operate. And so they did it based on, you know, their other knowledge of, you know, of fighting those things, but not quite of how virus works, I believe. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, you know, we up until we invented these genetic vaccines in the past year, it was almost as if we were still back in 1918, you know, wear mm-hmm. a mask, stay socially distanced. But now we've made this great, amazing leap forward, which is, all right, we can make vaccines not by taking the virus and growing them in egg whites and then deactivating them and it takes forever yeah. and you worry about it being safe. Instead, we just take a piece of RNA and code it to yeah. make that little protein you want to use to stimulate the immune system. So that's interesting to me. This is the part that I find so fascinating. So uh, before, the way that the vaccine works before is you have to take either a weakened virus like one before or a dead virus in some cases, or and you develop that virus through like... Uh, incubation in an egg or that type of thing. But this process took a while developing the nature of that. And then that goes into your body and your body thinks it's the actual virus and it attacks it, creating antibodies. And now those antibodies then give you your immunity. That's basically how a basic vaccine works, but it's dependent on some form of the virus. And that's what, that's, what's important about that. Right. That's exactly yeah. right. And that's how we got the polio vaccines. Polio, right. And of course, measles and mumps and rubella, sure. they all use inactivated or weakened mm-hmm. versions of the virus. And now we're doing something totally new. Okay, so this is what's interesting now. So now, instead of using a portion of the virus, there is information that is telling your body to create something. Uh, to create a response based on just a genetic process. You know, this, this, uh, the RNA messenger goes in and says, Hey guys, 
you know, there's a storm coming. We got to put up some storm windows. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's going to be here soon. I just think we should build this stuff. You don't have to believe me, but, yeah. you know, I was right That's about right. no. Yeah, what you do is you take a piece of, you code a little snippet of RNA to yeah. act like a messenger, and it goes into that part of the cell that I said builds the protein. Yeah. And you've coded it so it builds a part of the spike protein right. that's on the surface of the coronavirus. So uh-huh. instead of having the entire coronavirus weakened and grown and right. deactivated and then shot into your arm, all you have is this piece of genetic message that says, build this part of the spike protein. And that's why it's really safe uh-huh. because all your body is doing is not creating the virus itself. It's just creating this fragment of the virus, the part of the spike protein, which means if the real virus ever hits you, your body recognizes, oh, there's that spike protein and says, let me, let me destroy it. And so uh, it's a way of creating immunity just for now. The reason it's good that we can recode these things is if you get a new variant of the virus, mm-hmm. you know, like the ones coming out of Britain or wherever, sometimes the spike protein looks a little bit different. So you'll have to tweak the code mm-hmm. of the RNA. But at the moment, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are good enough that uh, they work with any of the variants. But it also seems like this method is setting itself up for an amazing amount of flexibility that is revolutionary. Because if all you have to do is recode to combat a variant, that's much better than trying to find the variant and trying to grow the variant or whatever, you know, and that sort of thing. It's going to save a tremendous amount of time, right? Right. It took seven or eight years usually to get a vaccine. Wow. Now, right now, Moderna is making a booster shot just in case mm-hmm. based on some of the variants. It took them like two weeks. It's all it takes. They uh, said, okay, here's the sequence of the new variant. Let's build a piece of messenger RNA that'll make an antibody for, I mean, an antigen so that we can create antibodies. And Walter, how did the idea to do this first come about, you know, to, to try this approach? You know, it came from basic science, just like CRISPR Mm -hmm. came from, hey, let's figure out why do bacteria have all these clustered repeated sequences, right? Mm -hmm. And that was just pure curiosity. It takes like 10 years of studying it and you're figuring it out, oh, it's fighting off viruses. And then you have an aha moment, which is we can turn that into a useful tool. Mm -hmm. Likewise, messenger RNA We've been working with that since probably the mid-1960s. In fact, Francis Crick and James Watson, after they do the structure of DNA, they work on this idea of messenger RNA. Then there was a wonderful woman, Professor Carrico, at the University of Pennsylvania, she was, about 10, no, about 15 years ago, figured out a way, because everybody knew messenger RNA was really powerful. It can make our cells build proteins. But getting it into our cells without our immune system attacking the mRNA was kind of difficult. So she invented a way that you could get it into human cells safely. So these are all basic scientists, but it still happens a year ago, you know, last February and March, we have this basic science sitting there 
and you say, boom, the people at Moderna, the people at BioNTech, the mm-hmm. people at Pfizer say, man, I'm glad we have this technology. We're going to start making vaccines. I think it took the people at Moderna. I talked to them and BioNTech too, the Pfizer people, uh, partners. Uh, it only took two or three weeks once they got the sequence of the coronavirus wow. you know, from China. It only took two or three weeks to code the messenger RNA you needed to defeat it. Wow. Do you think uh, because it was such a daunting pandemic that it kind of forced this hand like uh, uh, outside of that, we may not have had we may not have had this advancement this year? Yeah, I think it, it sure concentrates the mind when you're faced with right, global right, pandemic. right, right. You global need you death, to take weekends off, right? <laughs> global extinction. Yeah, six p.m. It's not like it's six p.m. time to go home, right? Yeah, right. they were making vaccines. Moderna was, uh, BioNTech was, and making cancer treatments using this process of coding okay. in RNA to build the proteins you want. Uh, they've been doing that for five or six years, but they had never succeeded in actually producing. I mean, they were going, you know, at a nice slow pace and they hadn't made any drugs yet that had been approved. But when the coronavirus hit, it lit a fire under them. And within, I'd say they start work in February by July of last year, they're shipping this to the centers for disease control for testing and to the FDA for approval uh, so yeah, I think it's really sped up the process. Now that's a you mentioned uh, Moderna and Pfizer. What approach is the Johnson and Johnson vaccine? That's a really good question. Instead of just putting in messenger RNA, uh-huh. it doesn't do that, and it doesn't take the deactivated virus the way the polio or right. measles one was. What it does is it takes a gene that would make the spike protein. In other words, the whole gene that would make wow. the spike protein. And it engineers it into a safe virus called an adenovirus, which is ah. you know, just a virus that's really safe. It's, it's genetic engineering. You combine the uh, you combine the safe virus you have with this gene you want to stitch into it. And then that virus goes to our cell and puts the gene in there and the gene. And at that point, they work about the same, the RNA one and the uh, Johnson and Johnson is because what they do is they tell our cells to make this fragment of the spike protein. And so our cells almost become the manufacturing facility Mm -hmm. uh, for the vaccines, uh, what we call antigens. Right. I think that uh, that's a harder process what Johnson Johnson did. And the problem with it, too, is you can't recode it as easily. I mean, you're engineering right. a full gene into a safe virus. Right. Because right. Uh, with an mRNA vaccine, all you're doing is saying, okay, here's the letters of code for that piece of message. Right. <laughs> Go to work, guys. Go to work, guys. <laughs> Have fun. Yeah, it's almost Frankensteinian, the Johnson & Johnson. You know, it's creating a whole new monster. What if that monster... I, there's a question. I don't know if you can answer this. Could that mutate this... Uh, I, I don't want to scare people out there with, yeah, this, now, with this type of question. You know, uh, that's a, early on, this uh-huh. process, which was 
is called recombinant DNA, which right. is a frightening enough phrase in sure. and of itself. And it means familiar with it. Yeah, it means approximately what you can guess it means, which is you recombine right. the DNA from one organism into the DNA of another organism. And I think right. that came about in the 1970s. People like sure. Paul Berg and Hubbard Boyer, mm-hmm. a company called Genentech, which is now huge. Uh, it was founded based on this. Mm-hmm. And so they had a whole lot of safety conferences back then on the question you just asked me, Larry, which is, wait, if we use recombinant DNA to genetically engineer an organism right. that has yes. never existed before. Right. Yes. Thank yeah. you. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. What could, what could happen? <laughs> what could happen? Yeah, let's try it. Let's see. And they had an incredible amount of safety regulation mm-hmm. so that when you use recombinant DNA to create this new type of organism, mm-hmm. you have to just be very careful that you get to reverse the process. You can kill it if you need to. Right. But you're right. I mean, I'm somebody who's not afraid of science and loves, you know, I'm sure it doesn't frighten me, but the notion of recombinant DNA is actually a little bit scarier to me than just this messenger RNA, which, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, a piece of genetic code telling the makers a protein. You can turn it off if you need to. Well, but they're, they do have different type of ethical possibilities or questions associated with them. You know, one, I guess, would be people's relationship to the notion of creation, I suppose, the creative act. You know, what are humans allowed to do, what we should be doing. And intervention, I suppose, too, you know, uh, changing, you know, the nature of stuff, which we do anyway, you know. But... uh as far as CRISPR is concerned, and I know Jennifer Doutna, didn't you, I think uh, in your book you mentioned she had, she had like a horrible nightmare about yeah. Hitler asking her some questions or something like that. What was that all about? So after she invents the way to use CRISPR to yeah. edit human genes, she has a nightmare. And somebody wants to talk to her about this new technology. So she goes into the room to meet the person and it's Hitler. Wow. And so she can't sleep for days after that. And she starts gathering scientists, and they have international summits, and to figure out how do we make sure this doesn't get into the wrong hands. And even now, she's working very, and this is why I love her as a central character, she's not just a scientist, she's a humanist. She says, okay, now that we've invented this, let's figure out when we should use it or not. Uh It's like when Einstein and Oppenheimer and others helped invent the atom bomb. Right. You know, it was only after it was used twice that we said, okay, maybe we should figure out whether or not we should be using this thing. So they want to do this before we start genetically engineering humans. Now, I think there's a general consensus that using CRISPR to edit the cells of a living patient who gives informed consent mm-hmm. is fine. There's no way it can escape. You know, if right. something goes wrong, it's kind of bad for the patient. Mm-hmm. But it's not like at making an inheritable edit. So this past year, CRISPR has been used quite a few times in quite a few cases to actually cure diseases. There's, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know you know from reading the book, but a woman named Victoria Gray uh, mm-hmm. lives in Mississippi, and she's got sickle cell. Yeah. And she became the first person on the planet 
to be cured of a disease by CRISPR. They mm-hmm. went in, they took her blood cells. I mean, they, you know, extracted some of her blood cells and then they edited the stem cells so that instead of making sickled blood cells, it makes, you know, ordinary blood cells. And now she doesn't suffer from sickle cell anemia. I don't think anybody would be against that. That would mm-hmm. be like being against the polio vaccine. And you can make an argument that Franklin Roosevelt got polio and it helped forge his character and it made him a great leader. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean we want our kids to get polio. So we do take precautions and use our ingenuity to protect us against nature. Uh, CRISPR has also been used in the past year against other blood diseases. It's being used in clinical trials against um, congenital blindness. It's being used to fight cancer. Uh, and create immunotherapies for cancer. So those are fine. The real question is, what if you start editing uh, reproductive cells mm-hmm. and say we want to design our children? We want them to be taller or smarter, or, you know, more muscular or have a different personality. Mm-hmm. And that's where the ethics really gets tricky. Because it always starts small. I mean, you know, this... We started this conversation talking about the Nazis, you know, Hitler and all that, but they were very much interested in eugenics, you know, back then and the manufacturing of the master race. And, you know, it's ironic that, you know, Einstein during that time and the atom bomb was about, you know, destroying things. And this whole conversation is about creating things. But these things usually start off innocent. You know, I just want to control the color of my baby's eyes, people might be saying. What's wrong with that? You know? Uh, It becomes as you alluding to a slippery slope. Yeah. You say, okay, eye color, what's wrong with that? And then you say muscle mass. Well, what's wrong with that? And then you say, okay, I'm going to enhance this out of the other thing. You know, mm-hmm. maybe for you, a cure for baldness. You say, hey, what's wrong with that? Or for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all slopes are slippery. And the thing you have to do is say, let's do this step by step. Let's agree that this step say, uh, making sure we're not susceptible to this type of virus so that we can defeat a genetic disease like muscular dystrophy or Tay-Sachs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll take that step. But then let's pause and say, let's go hand in hand cautiously before we go to the next step. And so that's what my book tries to do, which is to say, how do we do this step by step so we don't fall down a slippery slope? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you low-key slipped in, for me, a cure for baldness, I think. No, uh, just for anybody. Because <laughs> like, I actually have hair. You it's have just, hair. Just white. Uh, <laughs> uh, how much work has been done? You know, it's it's interesting that sickle cell, is that is an amazing achievement, because as we know, you know, that was a mutation, especially in Africans, to fight off malaria, that type of thing. And to be able to change that, you know, it's is just fascinating. Has this been done on a wider scale or is it is there just been trials in this? There's just been trials. In fact, there's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a similar blood disease that's been done a few times in Germany. But only once, I think, mm-hmm. have we done sickle cell, which was just a few months ago in Nashville with Victoria Gray, who's from Mississippi. Uh, it was done. And you're right. It's a simple genetic mutation. And there are a lot of diseases like that. Mm -hmm. Huntington's, Mm -hmm. Tay-Sachs, muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis. 
those are the ones we could probably do rather easily right mm-hmm. now. And it would be great because um, there's, but you know, here there's somebody in my book I'll introduce you to right now. You've probably read it, but a guy named David Sanchez, 17 years old, loves playing basketball, except for when he doubles over in pain because he's got sickle cell. Mm. And so his doctor in Stanford is showing him how CRISPR has now worked a few months ago and how maybe they can edit his children mm-hmm. so that if he ever has children, they won't have sickle cell, that they'll mm-hmm. fix it in the reproductive cells. Mm-hmm. He says, wow, that's great. I could have kids who wouldn't have sickle cell. But then he pauses and says, well, maybe it should be up to the kid once a kid is born instead mm-hmm. of it being decided by us. And they say, well, wouldn't you want your kids not to have sickle cell? And he says, probably, but sickle cell taught me a lot. I wouldn't be me if I didn't have sickle cell. It taught me patience. It taught me empathy, you know, and persistence. And so we, he's wiser than a lot of the gung-ho researchers in Absolutely. the book. Because we have to say, before we do these things, even editing out deafness, if you and I were having kids, and the doctor said, all right, there's a gene that might cause deafness. Do you want us to get rid of it? I think we'd say yes. We would rather our kids be hearing enabled. But if you're part of the deaf community, you might say, wait a minute. That's part of the diversity of our species. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we shouldn't edit deafness out of our species. Uh, as I said, me personally, I would, you know, want to have kids that were hearing enabled. I think it makes it safer and, you know, gives them better uh, uh, traits, you know, capabilities. But I have to pause and think, well, maybe it's just societal prejudices that we don't accept deaf people as being part of our society as much as we should. So these are the ethical issues we're going to face when we get into gene editing the human race. Is... uh let alone, uh, those are just like what we would consider defects. Something's not working properly, you know, right. or, or something isn't responding normally. But uh, how about when you just get into appearances, you know, like, yeah. you know, <laughs> what are the ethics of that, you know? Uh, and do you think those ethics will change over time? Like, I, I feel like, you know, it's so weird. Like, once you start going down this road, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think it may be easier for people to say, look, this is the exact color of the skin that I want my children mm-hmm. to have. This exact color right here. Why am I not able to have that? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. And it is something genetically that probably is not all that difficult. And likewise, you make a distinction, which is a good one, between fixing a defect mm-hmm. and then doing a cosmetic or non-cosmetic enhancement. Right. For example, if a person has Huntington's disease or you know muscular dystrophy, it's mm-hmm. clearly, in our minds at least, a defect you mm-hmm. want to fix. I mean, it's painful and horrible, and you will die. Absolutely. So that's at one end of the spectrum, which is something that's clearly a disability and a disease that you want to fix. At the other end of the spectrum might be 
my kid is going to be five foot eight and I want him to be six foot six. So let me enhance the kid's okay. height. Right. And as you say, skin color shouldn't be all that hard. Here's the exact cue that I want. Um, I don't know. I'm going to turn it back to you, Larry. <laughs> is there a, you know, George Church is quoted in my book at Harvard. He's a Harvard, you know, professor who's worked with Jennifer Downey. He said, I don't know why given deciding to give a kid, you know, the hair color you want, the eye colors you want, a little extra IQ points. He says, what's the moral problem with that? And yet I still am not sure this is something we should be doing. Well, it's interesting because the way that you do that is more the issue than doing that. Because if you choose a partner that has green eyes and is a high IQ and comes from a healthy family, you are choosing circumstances for your child, you know, in many ways, you know. Uh, you know, you can't always determine the color of the eyes, of course. I'm just I'm not necessarily suggesting yeah, that. But, but you're right. But, That's but a really if you, good point. Yeah, if a woman marries a guy who's 6'6", her chances of having a child that's going to be tall are a lot better than marrying a guy that's 5'3", you know. So. Every species on this planet, from humans to cows to whatever, horses, yeah, you do breeding, and selective yes. breeding allows certain traits to right. dominate. So why is it wrong, the question would be, to speed up the process with exactly. our own ingenuity? And that's what I'm saying. I met some tall dude, but I want tall children, so let <laughs> yes. me kick up this gene a bit. Yes, people might make that argument. Say, look, I'm in love with a guy who's 5'5", five five, but I really want my kids to be 6'5". Why do I got to marry a 6'5 guy to make that you know, happen? That's a good argument. Like, why is it more fair to say some people got it in the random lottery, they got the gene to be 6'5"? Right. Why is that more fair than me saying I'm going to go to a doctor? And make sure that the myostatin, you know, suppressors uh, don't kick in until the person has this much muscle mass or this height. I mean, Walter, I mean, we may be getting close. It, I, it may not be in my lifetime. I'm not sure. But where people may be having arguments over the morality of giving birth to a child below a certain IQ, if they can affect that. Like, that so, is one of the most interesting moral yeah. arguments that I didn't even think about until I was writing the book, which is people who now might argue, instead of arguing it's immoral to do genetic editing uh, (laughs) to enhance or help the traits of our kids, they argue it will be immoral (laughs) not to do that. I, I, right now, I got the story already. It's called The Dumb Child. You know, you yeah. had the audacity. Well, I mean, <laughs> does that a bit. I mean, it yeah. wrestles with that. It does, you know, but it's interesting how the morality line can shift, you know, based on where the culture is at the time as well. You well, know, I think certainly for genetic, you know, disabilities. If you're bringing a child into the world and you know that that child will have Huntington's, which is right. Nobody's going to argue with that. Absolutely gruesome disease. Right. And the doctor says, we can edit that out. And you say, no, I want the child to go through a gruesome short life. (laughs) Oh, my God. Then the doctor could say, that's not, you probably have the right to do that because we don't interfere in people's reproductive choices. But it's a bad decision to make. Well, this could affect even abortion. I mean, there are people that might 
make some of these decisions, you know, to have an abortion based on some of those well, things. You know, that's already happening for years in China in particular, where, you know, with the one child policy, uh, girls got aborted more quickly than boys. And so, you know, in some ways, genetic engineering is probably better than doing it, you know, that way. Wow. So to prevent the an abortion, just genetic engineer. And, uh, yeah, and we have something in between called um, pre-implantation mm-hmm. genetic diagnosis. That's a mouthful. But it means if you're having IVF, a test tube, you know, IVF in vitro fertilization, right? you can look at the embryos and say, all right, we've produced six fertilized eggs. This one has Huntington's. This one doesn't. So let's implant the one that doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, a very ethical approach to this. Mm-hmm. But I've actually gone, my wife and I, through IVF when we were trying to have kids and yeah. finally did. It's not that easy to produce a whole lot of fertilized eggs and have them all, you know, screened. So eventually people will probably want to use gene engineering mm-hmm. if they're carrying a genetic inherited disease like Huntington's or Tay-Sachs or sickle cell. Walter, you also participated in vaccine trials. How was that? What was that like? Were you concerned at all? No, I mean, we talked about it earlier, which is I knew these were messenger RNA vaccines. I wasn't, I mean, if some, I had in my book, one of these biohackers who does things in their garage and I use him as sort of the comic relief a bit, in the book, his name is Josiah Zayna. Right. And he's been able to use CRISPR to try to make frogs stronger and <laughs> yes. even shot himself up with some CRISPR editing. That's great. Uh, you know, uh, solutions so he can have bigger muscle mass. It didn't work. Right. So he makes a DNA vaccine in his garage and he emails it. And that emails, he mails it to me, regular mail. And I'm, uh, and says, use it, get a syringe and shoot yourself up with it. I'm like, we got to be out of your goddamn mind. Yeah, you're crazy. Um, but I did, when he was saying, all right, we're going to make our own vaccine, I did want to participate. So instead of using his wacky, the one he did in his garage, right. the homebrew vaccine, I went to Oxford Hospital here in New Orleans, and they were doing clinical trials, and I said, count me in, sign me up. Wow. Um, Walter, thanks so much, you know, for being here. Your book is fascinating, you know, like there's so much in it that as, you know, just talking to you even raises new questions, you know, just uh, going through this. Um, let me ask you this before we go. Where I mean, you've written so much about important figures in history and that sort of thing. Where do you put this moment, this CRISPR moment, I'll call it, and maybe uh, Jennifer Doubtna as well, in historical perspective, do you think it's going to be as big a moment look, you know, for the future that people look back as this was one of those turning points? Yeah. I remember the launch of the iPhone. Mm -hmm. That was a huge turning point. It not only allowed us to have smartphones, but it was a platform in which other people could build things like Uber or Airbnb and stuff like that. And suddenly you had this phone that really changed everything. Mm -hmm. I think genetic engineering will be of even greater magnitude, including uh, not just engineering our genes, but using CRISPR with, you know, we'll have home devices. That'll be a little bit, I won't say like the iPhone, but they'll be a little bit like a, 
you know, Amazon Echo or some little device we have on the counter in which you put your saliva every morning into a cartridge and you can find out about things like your gut microbiome and you know, whether you have coronavirus and if cancer cells are spreading around or anything you want. And this will all bring biology into our daily lives the way wow. the personal computer and the iPhone brought the digital revolution into our daily lives. I think that the life sciences revolution that allows us to recode mm-hmm. all the cells and all the molecules that make up life, that's the really big one. And I think it's not very complicated to understand. So it's useful for people to try to say, let's go on this journey of discovery with Jennifer Dowden and everybody who yeah. was part of this and figure out what it is and then go with her and my book and uh, through the journey of ethical discovery mm-hmm. to say all those questions that you, Larry, asked so well, which is why, you know, why would we do that? And then why wouldn't we do that? And mm-hmm. try to figure out step by step how we're going to go down the slope without making it too slippery. It would be interesting to live in a world where people look back and go, remember when people thought diabetes was a thing? Like, what? Absolutely. Why didn't they just crisper it out? I don't understand that. You know, <laughs> Very, very fascinating. Um, my prediction also is after this genetic thing, here's my prediction for you, Welton. Our next adventure will be the subatomic and dark matter world. And that's where quantum mechanics is going to make its glorious return. That's that's my that's my prediction. That is amazing, and that's a really interesting. I mean, I'm going to have to chew on that because you <laughs> provoked me. But I try to understand everything in science the way you do. I mean, yeah. you're just great that way. The one thing that baffles me is quantum mechanics. Yes, fascinated with it. Fascinating. Makes me feel better. Is even Einstein was baffled by it completely. But I think quantum mechanics is the future of so many things that we can only imagine right now that seem like science fiction is all in quantum mechanics, you know. And dark matter, I think, is one of those areas that once we start to understand that, we're going to go, fuck, this is all around us. How do we not know this before? Exactly. <laughs> you know? It's like a fish discovering I've been in water my whole life. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, what's going on here? Uh, Walter Isaacson, the code breaker, Jennifer Doubtman, gene editing, and the future of the human race. Get it, get it, get it, guys. This is such good reading. Walter, good luck with the book, and thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. You know, I'm such a big fan of yours. It was just oh. an honor, honor. Uh, oh, are you kidding me? Honor is all mine. Oh, man. I, you know, you're a great uh, comedian, by the way. Oh, and, thanks, uh, Walter. I was thinking, okay, how am I going to make this funny? <laughs> right. No, no, no. But science was my first love. You have to know this. Science was my first love. Second you know was that. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a major distinction between science and comedy. I think yeah. they're connected somehow. And they're connected yeah. by quantum mechanics. There you go. That's And for me, it's dark matter. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Walter Isaacson, everybody. Thanks, Walter. Larry Wilmore, thank you so much. 